So I've heard that there is a Chinese curse that goes like this. May you live in interesting times. And we might wonder why that is considered a curse. Because it's quite obvious that we live in tumultuous times. And by that, I refer to the... um, just the amount of uncertain change that's occurring in the environment, in the world economic scene, in the politicization in this country and elsewhere in the world, in the, what some would call a spiritual or a religious renaissance that is yet to be kind of resolved. And there are just immense forces at loose uh, in the world that are impacting our lives. And we're here, and let's face it, these forces are much bigger than any one of us. And so when Saito Utejaniya says, you know, the mind is not yours, Hey, do we get to choose what the news is going to be that's going to impact us today and every day for the rest of our life? No. And so the mind, what comes into the mind and what the mind's got to deal with is not of our choosing. And yet, we are responsible for dealing with it. Just as we are responsible for dealing with the way that these tumultuous, unpredictable, ever-changing, rapidly changing forces in the world are impacting our life. In a more personal, or from a more personal perspective, we could say that the vicissitudes of life are just really swinging wildly. And the Buddha referred to the vicissitudes of life as the eight worldly conditions that all beings are heir to. Pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. And we see how impactful any of those conditions can be on our life. And while we all wish for the the gain, the pleasure, the fame, and the, the renown, Uh, you know, fortunes shift on a dime just in a moment's notice. You know, winners are losers and vice versa. And, you know, it can happen to any one of us at any time. How we will respond or react to these conditions as they impact us is deeply conditioned by what in the Buddhist psychology is understood as the mental legacies that we are heir to. Did you ever wonder why some people, and maybe it's yourself, maybe it's your kids, or people in your family or friends that you know that have very strong personalities, they're very generous, or they're very angry, 
or they have a predominant predispositions towards just being confused uh, or they just have extraordinary, you know, some have a lot of patience, some have no patience. And, and you really see that sometimes beings seem to come into this world with a kind of a, an index or profile of mental qualities that is already determined. It's already established. And it's, a, it's almost as if we just come in, pick up what remained of the last time around, and keep working with it. And in fact, that is the understanding from the Buddhist psychology that um, we do, um, we are heir to a karmic profile depending on the force of our karmic actions in the past, skillful and unskillful, we get to enjoy pleasant or put up with unpleasant experiences. Not only do we come with or are we heir to a karmic profile, but we also have a, um, an index of unwholesome tendencies. You know, some of us are really susceptible to aversion, others to greed, others to, you know, confusion, as I mentioned. And just as we are heir to, um, you know, an index of unwholesome qualities of mind, we also are heir to a parami profile or the profile of the wholesome qualities of mind. And we, 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 we can feel the momentum of these qualities of mind in our behaviors, in our choices of what we like and dislike, and what we prefer and what we don't prefer, and how we act in the world. So how we're going to react or respond to the interesting times of life is not entirely determined by any means by the profile that we're born with, but they do exert a powerful influence on the choices we make. To free oneself, to free ourselves, from this curse, to take advantage of the tumultuous times in which we live. It's clear that we each must develop our own qualities of heart and mind to uh, respond rather than to react to the conditions that we face. A couple of years ago, you know, the tsunami that the, the earthquake and the tsunami and the nuclear disaster in northern Japan washed over these people's lives in a matter of a few hours, forever changing their life, undermining their sense of stability, security, well-being in major, significant, catastrophic ways. Now imagine that you were there. Imagine that you lived there. And, you know, the tidal wave goes through, or the, 
and it recedes and you look around at the devastation who would you want to see who would you want to be there for you when you surveyed the devastation of your life clearly we would want the most kind compassionate understanding patient generous wise energetic resolved resolute person that you could imagine and you don't want somebody who's going to be confused hysterical reactive you know kind of like greedy you know kind of like think about it we would want to see to meet to to be met by the most human of humans the one who had the most developed human qualities because that's what really matters that's what really matters when catastrophes catastrophes strike it's what really matters in our everyday life who is it in your life that is a support that's a benefit that's a benefactor that's uh really not just a burden on your life or not just a drain on your life but someone that you can rely on so uh contingency plans for the inevitable trouble ahead is the development of these wholesome qualities which will serve us and others well in these tumultuous times if we did a survey uh, amongst us of the qualities that we would most like to meet in someone after a catastrophe like that we could create a list generosity kindness patience wisdom energy understanding non-reactivity balanced mind you know someone who's going to be sharing rather than tearing <laughs> and these qualities are known in the buddhist tradition as the forces of purity the forces of purity in the mind because they are free of attachment aversion and delusion they're known as the paramis the forces of purity or purification what made the buddha so unique and distinctive among humans is that as the bodhisattva as the being who aspired to become a buddha living hundreds of lifetimes in order to develop the qualities of a buddha he developed these forces of purity in the mind to the point where generosity living ethically being loving non-reactive or more balanced wise was the default setting of his mind when faced with catastrophe when faced with anything now imagine you know you're going you're leaving the retreat in a couple of days you're going out and you're facing the world nothing dramatic has happened same same still disaster um <laughs> is generosity going to be your first default setting in response to the conditions you see is understanding and patience going to be their default setting or wisdom or loving kindness 
to everything you see in the news, and your neighbors, and your friends, and your family, and when you get back to work, patience please, um, we can see what a challenge it would be to so develop your heart and mind that these were the default setting, the first response of your heart to every situation. That's what makes the Buddha unique. That's what makes the Buddha so extraordinary is that he willingly undertook the hundreds of lifetimes to be placed in the most challenging of situations in order to develop and strengthen these qualities of heart. And, let's face it, these are the qualities of mind or heart that are most valuable in the work that we do here. Patience, energy, wisdom, loving-kindness or compassion, for yourself even. So we can see just what a challenge it is for us here, let alone being in the world for hundreds of lifetimes. It's clear that each of us has the potential within us to develop these qualities. All of us have been generous at one time or another. All of us have been kind, loving, patient, uh, understanding, resolved, determined. And so it's not that these qualities are foreign, exotic, far away, and we've got to go find them somewhere. But they're within our heart, they're within our mind, as a potential. And while we have some experience of them, and they have been developed to some degree, it's fair to say that we all recognize that there's room for improvement. Nevertheless, if we choose to develop these qualities, we can find the knowledge, undertake the practices, test, it, test ourselves with them daily or as often as you want. But we need to know that developing these qualities is going to go against your conditioning. Our society, our families, our schooling might pay great lip service to these qualities but you will find a lot of resistance, a lot of impediment, a lot of uh, backsliding or not walking the talk uh, among individuals, maybe your family members or peers. And so to take on these practices to develop these qualities, you can be sure you're going to confront your comfort zone. We're going to have to step outside your comfort zone in order to really make them, as much as possible, the default setting of your mind. But it's clear also that these qualities are not particularly Buddhist. What's so Buddhist about being generous or being loving? That's, that's not particularly Buddhist. People all over the world, good people all over the world, in every culture, every society, throughout human history, have valued these, have extolled the virtues of 
these qualities of mind. And neither are they particularly esoteric. They're not remote, they're not vague, they're not diffuse. They're, they're pretty obvious. In fact, they're really rather mundane and ordinary. Because we all know people who are kind, generous, understanding, patient. The most ordinary people can be that way, can have those, these qualities highly developed. But just because we have the potential and we see the potential within us for room for improvement, if we don't personally value and make a personal choice to value and develop these qualities, it doesn't happen by accident. It really takes um, knowledge of the potential and a personal choice, an investment that this is the way I want to live my life. I really want to be more patient. I really want to be more loving, more understanding. The way to do that is to practice awareness. If we don't see our behavior as it is now, we won't see the opportunity to be otherwise. We won't recognize that, oh, we're not being generous, we're not being loving, we're not being kind, or that there's room for improvement in any of these qualities. If we're just living out our habits, living out the way we've been trained or conditioned, you can be sure we're not going to grow in potential. We're not going to manifest the potential within us. And so we need to remind ourselves of the potential. We need to value that there is an alternative response rather than just a conditioned reaction. And then we need to remember that these are the qualities that we most value and want to bring forth in our life. We can forget that patience is an option. When you're commuting to tra in traffic to work or home from work, patience is an option. Generosity is an option. Through the development of these qualities of mind, we really learn to inhabit the Dharma or inhabit the truth because the truth is what leads to happiness. And to the extent that we develop these qualities of heart and mind and we live in the truth and the value of them in our life, we will be living a Dharma lifestyle. When you come on a retreat like this, you get a heavy dose of, you know, a heavy infusion of Dharma, both in practicing the precepts, living in harmony, developing awareness, developing insight, calming the mind, doing some loving kindness and sharing the merit and practicing generosity. And so we get, well, it's like a Dharma binge. <laughs> you know, and some people use retreats just as, as like Dharma binging. You know, a couple times a year you go on a binge, get a Dharma infusion and then go dissipate it <laughs> until the next binge, you know. And while we may mouth the aspiration of really having Dharma in our life in a more ongoing, steady way, we haven't learned how to do that yet. Well, developing these wholesome qualities of mind is the way to 
a steady diet of dharma in your life. The interesting thing, you know, I spoke the other night about the uh, Four Noble Truths, you know, the truth of dukkha, the truth of craving as the cause of dukkha, the possibility that there is, this is the Third Noble Truth, the end of craving and therefore the end of dukkha. And the Fourth Noble Truth was the path, the path of the Noble Eightfold Path that is the way to realize the end of craving and the end of dukkha. All of those eight path factors, right view, right thought, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, right speech, right action, right livelihood, or we could say skillful, non-harming in every instance. All of these practices, all of these limbs of the Eightfold Path are practices of awareness being aware of what is skillful view, unskillful view, skillful speech, unskillful speech. And they're also all practices of letting go. Because when we see what it is we're hanging on to out of aversion, attachment, confusion, that's what needs to be let go of. They're mindfulness practices, their renunciation practices or letting go, practices of letting go, and they're also the vehicle for happiness. One yogi at a recent retreat said, I want a life of awareness. I don't want the lifestyle of a retreat. And I think we all get it, that we really would like to have a life of Dharma, you know, have the Dharma infused in our life, social, civic, interpersonal uh, activities. Re I mean, none of us want to take the retreat home. We don't want to be in silence and walk slow and two meals a day. And <laughs> that's not what we want. So we need to understand that this isn't really the only way to practice the Dharma, to have the Dharma in our life. It's a training, it's an intensive training, but it's another whole field of work to bring the qualities that you've activated here, that you've developed here intensively, to bring those qualities into your life, your daily life, your household life with your kids and your partners and your parents and your co-workers and neighbors. And it doesn't immediately transfer from here to there. It takes work, as much work there as it takes here. <coughs> so when we look at these qualities of mind, qualities of heart, we can see that not only are they beneficial for ourselves, but to the extent that we develop them within our own heart, they are of value to and a benefit to everyone that we share life with. Generosity, kindness, non-reactivity, energy, patience. When you display or you exhibit or you live with these qualities of mind, everyone around you gets the benefit. And while this kind of work this kind of lifestyle of a retreat may look very self-absorbed. 
and very uh, kind of self-centered. It is. I won't deny it. But it's really making oneself a better human being. And in that we become and are able to serve others in our life more effectively, more skillfully, with more wisdom and compassion. So that's the introduction. <laughs> it's going to be a long talk. No. Um, I'd like to speak about the development of one of these qualities just to show you how awareness practice is required in everything we do in life. So I want to speak about the first parami, which is generosity. The teachings of the Buddha can be encapsulated in this short teaching. Do good deeds, avoid causing harm, and purify the mind. All of these do good deed, avoid causing harm, and purify your mind, are accomplished with an act of generosity. Shantideva, an 8th century Indian scholar, Buddhist scholar, in his book, The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, says, all the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. And all the misery the world contains has come through wanting pleasure for oneself. You might have to reflect on that to agree, but it's worth reflecting on. Because generosity is the most basic, and not even Buddhist, practice of learning the value of letting go. And, it, and while generosity looks like it is a practice of letting go of something of value, it's really learning how to let go of attachment to that object, to that thing. Mahasi Sayadaw, the elder Burmese monk who really is the kind of like the grandfather, the Dharma grandfather of the tradition of practice that, we, that most of us do here in the States, says that it is generosity that you can rely on for your wealth your happiness, and your humanity. Generosity, the foundation for one's wealth, happiness, and humanity. How does he figure that? Well, imagine that you're very generous. The benefit or the wealth you get from that is not necessarily financial, although karmically they say those who are generous will, will, will live with abundance both now and in the, in the future. But the, but the abundance or the wealth that you gain from practicing generosity is a wealth of friends, a wealth of joy, a wealth of happiness, a wealth of all of the good qualities of mind that make for an enduring sense of well-being. We also, in the cultivation of generosity and all of the wholesome qualities that accompany it, put aside the unwholesome qualities of stinginess, jealousy, envy, attachment, anxiety, fear, a sense of deprivation, 
Because no matter how much you have, or whatever it is you do have, if you live with a sense of abundance, you always have something to share. The happiness of practicing generosity comes from the actual act. All of you have practiced generosity. All of you have been generous at different times. But when you think about, oh yeah, you know, somebody's having a birthday or somebody's, somebody's needy next door or maybe you, have, maybe you make regular trips to the food bank in your area or to help feed the homeless or whatever it is. When you think about it, you get happy just thinking about, oh, tomorrow I'm going to... On Maui, sometimes we'll take uh, a bunch of Sangha members, go to Costco, buy a tremendous amount of pre-cooked chickens, flaked baked potato, I mean, uh, mashed potatoes, a bunch of fruit, ice cream, they like ice cream, take it over to the homeless shelter and feed them. It is such a rush. It is so much fun. People really enjoy it, and it's just, you can't help but feel happy when you think about it. And when you're doing it, when you're actually acting generously, making your, your gesture of support uh, for someone by offering them anything, when you look at them, when you see them, when you hand them the gift, they're happy. How can't you be? And then, after you've been generous, every time you think of that, every time you think back, just take a moment. Remember back to when you were generous to someone. Even if you give a dog a bone, they're happy. Really. They're happy, and you can be happy because the dog's so happy. You know, people are even more generous, more and more appreciative. But when you think of the times you've been generous, it can remind you of that happiness and bring more happiness. So if you want to be happy, be generous. And then every time you think of your generosity, you can be happy again and again and again. It never wears out. Years ago, before I, many years ago, I was living in Western Massachusetts and I read an article in the newspaper about uh, a potter in the Japanese pottery tradition who had a uh, workshop and display uh, sales shop nearby who had built a traditional and authentic Japanese tea house on his grounds. And he, every summer he brought someone from Japan to offer the tea ceremony for anybody that wanted to participate. So I read about it and I went over and uh, to do the tea ceremony. And it's a beautiful place. It's a nice, it's, a, it's an old western Massachusetts farm. Beautifully landscaped and lots of flowers and a beautiful Japanese garden and the tea house. And it could just, I just walked around for a couple of hours just soaking up the beauty and went to the tea ceremony. And that was a novel experience. And I just felt really happy. And so I wanted to um, thank the potter for creating it so that I could enjoy it. But he wasn't there. He was out of town for the day, week, whatever. But he'd be back later. So when he came back later, I went to see him. 
And I was poor in those days, uh, didn't have much to offer, but I wanted to offer him something because he'd offered so much just with his beautiful place. So every weekend in those years, I used to bake bread. I was a big bread eater and I would bake six loaves of bread. And so I took my loaf of bread to him to offer him a loaf of bread. And I went to see him and I thanked him and expressed my appreciation. And his pottery was beautiful, but too expensive for me. So I just offered him a loaf of bread. Later, when he needed help firing his wood-fired kill, which he only fired four times a year at the season, at the change of seasons, he asked me if I would come help. And so once the fire was going, he had to go to, he went, because he had to keep the fire going for 36, 40 hours or something. So he had to be there throwing wood in the kill for all that time. He got it started, invited me over to keep it going while he got some sleep for a few hours and then he came back and finished off the firing and he said in a couple of days when the when the kill cools down and we empty it you can help me empty it and you can pick a piece from the firing for yourself okay <laughs> well it just happened to be in the winter and it was on a full moon night and you got this roaring fire going in the kill it's huge huge kill and it's just it was just a Gorgeous, gorgeous night. It was just fantastic. A couple of days later, went back, unloaded the kill, and laid out all the pieces. He takes out all of the tins. Anything that he considers museum quality, he picks aside, and that's for him. Everything else was available. So I found a bowl. I found a bowl that was about the size I would need for a meal. And it was what I liked. It was, you know, it was suitable for me. And so he offered me this bowl, and I was really happy. I used that bowl for years coming to retreat here. I would bring my own bowl. Back in those days, things were different. <laughs> you didn't need to bring your own bowl, but it was helpful. So I brought my own bowl. You know, I ate a lot of meals out of that bowl. I was really attached to that bowl. I, added, I just really invested myself in it. And you know, years later, I went to Burma, put everything I had in storage, went to Burma, and uh, ordained as a monk and practiced for five years, during which time I just realized how much gratitude I had for my Dharma teachers. So when I returned from Asia and disrobed and got all my stuff again, what little stuff I had, I wanted to offer gifts to some of my teachers, Western teachers here. So I looked through all my stuff and I found the bowl. And I said, wow, this is the most, to me, the most valuable thing I own. And so I offered it to one of my teachers. And uh, I just said, you know, this is something I really value. This, this is its pedigree. This is my history with it. I'd like you to have it. And she received it and uh, used, put it on display in her house on her mantle for a while. And then periodically when I would be at her house, I'd see there's that bowl. And it was it was very uh, heartwarming to see that it was being used in, in that way. I lost track of it. Years later, I was invited to uh, dinner with uh, another Dharma benefactor and, uh, in Cambridge. And this is a, a, a person who was very uh, devoted and committed to the Dharma and very supportive of 
Dameron, New England, in the center here. And I'd gone for dinner. And we were sitting in the garden having a conversation. When it got cool in the evening, we went inside to uh, finish the conversation because we had eaten. And went inside and there was almost nothing in the house, in the apartment. It was very bare. Uh, it was just a few, you know, a little table here. And over in one corner there was a little two-person settee and uh, a one-person chair with a little coffee table in between. So she said, well, we, c we can sit over there. And uh, so we went over there to sit down. And I sat down on the couch and she'd sit down in the chair. And I looked on the coffee table and there's that bowl. <laughs> and I said... Um, well, that's a mighty nice bowl you got there. And she said, yes. She said, it was a gift from my teacher, one of my teachers. And I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, uh, you know the history of that bowl? She said, no, I don't. So I told her the story about the bowl. And she was surprised and delighted. And we had a good connection over that. At first, I felt a little like, hey, my teacher didn't like it, she gave it away. But then I thought, no, I gave it away because I really liked it. And I really wanted something of value to give to someone. And so I assumed similarly for her gift, gifting of it to this other person. And when I reflect on the story of the bowl, the life of the bowl, this bowl has been given away by the potter to me. I was happy, he was happy. I gave it, I used it. I was happy. I gave it away to my teacher. I was happy to give it away. She was happy to receive it. She used it for a number of years. She was happy to give it away to her student benefactor. And she was happy to receive it. Now you calculate the value of all that happiness far more than the cost or the value of that bowl. Right? I mean, the bowl is, you know, $40 or something. But the happiness of giving it away was worth, well, it was priceless. And even now, although I don't have the bowl in my possession, I don't feel like I've lost it. It really is alive and it's, a, it's as much a part of me as the whole sequence of gifting that has followed it around or that it's been its history. Giving is like that. Being generous is like that. The value of what you give is not the only determinant of the value of the giving. The Buddha said, if beings knew as I know the resultant benefit of generosity, they would not let an opportunity go by without sharing. If we knew what the Buddha knew, we would never let an opportunity go by without sharing, ever. That's what he said. That's how valuable, that's how important, that's how significant the practice of generosity is in the Buddha's understanding of the way to happiness. It's clear that the one who receives the gift, whatever the gift, is benefited, gets something of benefit. They're happy, they get something they can use, it's a value, and it can support their life in some way, in a healthy, helpful, hopefully uh, beneficial way. The benefit to the one who's the giver, the donor, is also clear. 
Do you know anybody who's generous, very generous, that doesn't have a lot of friends? And not because they're giving to them, but because that's their spirit, that's their energy, that's the kind of person they are. They live with a sense of abundance and they can share it. And so those who are generous, it is said, have the affection or have a lot of friends. There was a monk at the um, meditation center where I stayed in Burma. Uh, and he was just the most energetic guy, and he was really, really generous. Well, at one point in my uh, stay there over the course of five years, he asked me if I would help him learn English. And he knew some English, but I would just, he just wanted me to come talk with him for half hour, 45 minutes each evening. So I said, okay. So I went over there, and for months, I would just go over to his cottage, his little kuti, and we would try to talk. We would talk about anything what was going on that day or something in the cootie, whatever. Every time, I couldn't leave without him giving me something. Maybe it was a pen, maybe it was a little notebook, maybe it was some sugar candy, jaggery, maybe it was a set of rows, maybe whatever. Every time, though, not once did I leave without him giving me something. Very generous, very gen very well-loved monk. Unbelievably. Very, had a lot of uh, a lot of people really appreciated him. Those who are generous are also said to have self confidence in that they can enter any group and feel confident because they know in their own heart and minds that they're not isolating themselves from anyone. It's also said that they have a good reputation because the benefit of generosity is blameless. You can't be blamed for being generous. And it brings uh, a good reputation to those who are. Uh, Nicholas Kristof uh, wrote an op-ed column in the New York Times a few years ago reporting on research done at the National Institute of Health where they found that when one thinks of offering generosity to charity, areas of the brain light up that are usually associated with selfish pleasures like eating and sex, implying that we are hardwired to be altruistic. And he concluded that while charity has a mixed record of helping others, it has an almost perfect record of helping ourselves. <laughs> oh. Hey, right. But generosity is a mindfulness practice. It's an awareness practice. We have to be aware of the opportunity and aware of how to practice generosity. So it's learning to recognize in your own experience when the opportunity exists and how to take advantage of it. A few years ago, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to fill out a story that Carol started last night, several years ago now. I was going to Portland, uh, Oregon, quite a lot. And I don't know if Portland is different than other big cities. I don't live in cities. But there was an awful lot of street people, an awful lot of bakers, an awful lot of panhandlers in Portland or in the area of Portland where I was. They were just all over the place. And as I would walk around to go from the hotel to get something to eat or shop or whatever I needed to do, it's like I found myself 
my mind kind of unhappy, a little afraid, a little judgmental, really just not, not happy with what I saw and how I responded or reacted to the homeless and the, the, the panhandlers. And so I recognized this. I said, geez, they're just, they're just doing what they got to do to get by today, and I'm making myself miserable. <laughs> Hello? Uh, who can do anything about that? <laughs> so I said, well, I don't, I don't want to live this way. I don't want to live afraid of my own reactions to unfortunate conditions of others. So I, I made it a practice to greet and meet the homeless, the beggars, the panhandlers. And so I screwed up my courage and would approach, I mean, some of them are pretty okay in appearance and some of them are not, and behavior too, or misbehavior. And, but I just got in the habit of walking up to them and just asking them, how are you doing? What do you need? They've all got a story. They've all got a story. I need $10. I need $5. I'm just trying to get a bus to get home. I need, you know, I need some wine. I need a hit. I need a fix. I need whatever, whatever it is they need. I wasn't sitting in judgment of it. I just wanted to talk to them. And what I realized is there's a human being in there. There's somebody that's just like me. They're suffering in their own way. They have their own joys in life. And they're not particularly scary. You know, once you start talking to them, they're pretty, they can be pretty gregarious. I mean, some of them have their limitations, but nevertheless, I would find a way of being at ease with them. So when they would ask, when I would ask them, well, what do, you, what do you need or how much do you need? Wow, did I get some interesting responses. <laughs> you know, I need $2 to do my laundry. Really? You know, one guy says, I need $100 for something. <laughs> I'm not giving you $100. But I did start to practice generosity, whether it was $5, $2, $10, and occasionally $20, just to um, help him out. There was never a time when I approached a homeless person or a street person, offered them some token of support that I didn't feel totally happy. And I know they did too. Because what I actually gave them was not, I mean, the money, the token of financial support, it's just a gesture. What I really offered them was a recognition of their humanity and love. Because every act of generosity is offering love. And when you practice love, you feel good for it. And so does the recipient. I love street people. I love panhandlers. Because it gives me an opportunity to enhance my day every time. On one of my last trips to Seattle, I was riding with um, someone who was giving me a ride somewhere. Come up to a stop sign, intersections, panhandler. Pouring rain. Cold, too, Seattle, remember? 
So we rolled down the window. We said to the, <laughs> the driver said to the fellow, how's it going? He says, it's a little slow today. <laughs> What's that mean? I don't know what that means, but anyway, he was willing to have a conversation, so we made an, uh, 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 a donation and moved on. It is so touching to, to step out of your own suffering and connect with others, and they may be suffering too, but to really awaken your own love because uh, generosity is an act of love. A wise person, the Buddha said, gives a gift carefully, gives it with his or her own hand, gives it showing respect, gives a valuable gift, gives it with the understanding that something will come of it, and at the dissolution of the body after death, reappears in a beneficial place. We don't have to wait. Every act of generosity plants seeds of happiness to be experienced now and any time you remember. In fact, generosity is one of the three pillars, what are considered one of the three foundations for establishing the Dharma in your life. If you want to live a life in alignment with the truth, generosity, living ethically, and developing the mind are the basis for establishing the Dharma in your life. And if there's only two of those bases, doing your meditation and living ethically but not practicing generosity, <clears throat> the base is unstable. And Dharma won't be established firmly, securely in your life. <clears throat> there's another way that we practice generosity. Another way that we give. Another way that we bring awareness of our humanity and our connection with others into awareness. One of our students from several years ago, <clears throat> a woman who works for a consultant for uh, big, big corporations in the, in the Bay Area, started a, a nonprofit called What is Enough? And she, she goes to corporations with her presentation and package of material to ask corporations how they are going to recognize when they have enough. It's really good. She's really good at bringing this question to our attention. And so I want to just ask you, how much is enough in your life? We live on this earth. We live on this planet earth. It has limited resources. They're vast. There's a tremendous amount of wealth in the natural resources of the earth, but there are thousands of unborn generations that are going to want to live on this earth, just as we do. And so it is an act of generosity to consider how much is enough in your life. How much natural resources, how big a carbon footprint do you need to live on this earth? And are we living in such a way that we are unconsciously taking from the storehouse of wealth that future generations will need? 
if we practice awareness, we're going to have to face these questions. There's no easy answer, as you know. There's no easy answer. We live in a society and a culture that just is running amok with the environment in, in utter denial of the effect of our lifestyle on the Earth's environment. And yet, we as individuals practicing awareness are going to become aware of how our decisions, how our behaviors, how our actions, how our consumption impacts others. You can't avoid it. You can if you, want, if you don't want to be aware, but that's going to have complications and implications and effects all across your life. If you live in denial of the impact of your lifestyle on others, your happiness cannot be supported by the unhappiness of others. It doesn't work that way. And so it's something that we, as those who are practicing awareness, are going to have to face and have to consider. <clears throat> so I like to encourage you all to ask yourself frequently, how am I going to recognize when I have enough? Whether it's enough toilet paper or enough granola or enough food for this meal or enough whatever it is you've got uh, or whatever it is you think you need. Is there ever going to be a time when you can be content with what you have? You have to ask yourself these questions. This is what awareness will, will, will bring to your awareness. This is what paying attention will show you. And we have to ask these questions. You know, the Bodhisattva, who became the Buddha, the Bodhisattva was born under a tree. He sat under a tree. He first attained jhana under a tree. And he realized full awakening, becoming a Buddha under a tree. And he passed away under a tree. And he said, <clears throat> I resort to remote jungle thicket resting places in the forest as one of the noble ones possessed of wisdom. Seeing in myself this possession of wisdom, I found great solace in dwelling in the forest. It is because I see two benefits that I still resort to remote jungle thicket resting places in the forest. I see a pleasant abiding for myself here and now, and I have compassion for future generations. That's the Buddha. He went on to say, there are these trees and the roots of trees, there are empty huts. Meditate. Do not be negligent lest you regret it later. Wisaka, the chief patroness of the Buddha and a great supporter of his monks and nuns, said, when I remember my acts of generosity, I will be glad. When I'm glad, I'll be happy. When my mind is happy, my body will be tranquil. And when my body is tranquil, I will feel pleasure. When I feel pleasure, my mind will become concentrated. And that will bring about the development of the spiritual faculties, the spiritual powers, and the factors of enlightenment. This is the value. This is the power 
of generosity, developing the purification of the mind that is not attached, that's able to let go, not only of you know the bowl or what is ex in excess of what is enough, but is able to let go of attachment itself, because that's what the practice of generosity trains us to do, how to let go of attachment. And it's not only material things that we will eventually have to let go of on this path of awakening, but our views and opinions, our beliefs, our false beliefs, all of the behaviors that cause harm to ourselves or others. And so we need this practice of generosity as a foundation for learning the value and how to let go. These are the four resolves. The resolve for wisdom, the resolve for truth, the resolve for generosity, and the resolve for peace. One should not neglect wisdom. One should preserve the truth. One should cultivate generosity, and one should train in peace, the Buddha said. So let's sit for a moment and let the words quiet down. to remind you of what Mahasi Sayadaw said of generosity. He said, it is generosity that one can rely on for one's wealth, one's happiness, and one's humanity. Thank you for listening to the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.